Good morning and welcome in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you would turn to your bulletins, you will see there is just one announcement uh, reminding uh, you that uh, a little out of normal sequence, um, we do plan to get together, uh, Lord willing, October 1st after morning worship uh, to have a time of fellowship over lunch together. That's not our normal monthly fellowship uh, meal. That will be the following week, Lord willing. But uh, we anticipate having our brothers Sam Gunnup and uh, Teok So with us from uh, South Korea uh, over that weekend. And so we're seeking to uh, maximize the opportunities uh, that we might uh, um, meet with these brothers, encourage them uh, in uh, their work of the gospel uh, where the Lord has placed them and to uh, be updated on those things. So uh, further to them being with us in services and other opportunities, uh, October 1st we'll be having lunch together. Uh, to make it simple, we're just simply saying please bring uh, your own sack lunch, whatever you need uh, to keep you going till uh, you maybe get home, and that will keep the logistics simple uh, and maximize the opportunity for fellowship together. Um, that being said, we will uh, put out further details. I'm still waiting to hear from Sam to uh, confirm uh, arrival dates. It's dependent on uh, um, air travel, as you might imagine, and, and various logistical things. So as soon as that's confirmed, uh, we'll let you know the precise uh, details of when they're going to be here, when they're departing, and so forth. Uh, also, just wanted to take a couple of moments. Uh, we did uh, receive a small card this week uh, from our sister Helen, actually. Uh, Helen, uh, many of you will know, attended with us for a number of years and then uh, relocated uh, back east uh, with, uh, to some of her family members to be uh, supported uh, more in her advancing years. Um, but uh, she wrote the following to us, and uh, I thought this would be for our encouragement. Uh, she writes, to all my sisters and brothers at Grace Reformed Baptist Church, uh, this is uh, Helen writing to tell you, Whitey and I are doing fine. Uh, we miss you all so much, and uh, I miss going to church and being with you. But God bless all of you. Love from Helen and Whitey. So I'll leave the card on the table. Uh, you can read it again at your uh, leisure if you like. Uh, you'll see it's in Helen's own writing. Uh, a little spidery now as she's in advancing years, um, but uh, she remembers us, and we remember her and our bonds together in the Lord. And then lastly, some of you uh, may be aware, um, we've had some damage done to our sign uh, outside our building here this morning. Uh, we don't know all the details uh, of that. Um, it was probably willful damage, uh, knowing what has been done and how it's been done as far as we can ascertain. Um, first of all, let's say we want to be thankful that over the years uh, the Lord has protected our property and protected us in all of our comings and goings. Um, we've not had to deal with this kind of thing as a regular occurrence, and so we uh, do want to thank the Lord for that. Nevertheless, um, it reminds us that we are in a spiritual battle, and uh, not all, and many, in fact, do not love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Um, that they do not uh, bow the knee to the Lord of heaven and earth. They do not love Him. They do not love His Son, His gospel, or His church. And so from time to time, uh, these things do occur. Um, we will seek to uh, take care of this as the Lord uh, directs and enables us. Um, 
But having acknowledged that, we do not want it to distract us this morning. Perhaps that's the first thing we need to say by um, way of our immediate response. Um, the devil is always seeking to distract the people of God from their primary purpose of being here this morning. Um, we're here to worship God. And uh, we were thinking about that in our Sunday school hour. We bring that to our attention um, as uh, we prepare our hearts to worship God. Uh, so easy for our minds to get distracted by things like this and uh, to be thinking through, well, who's done it? How did they do it? Why did they do it? And so forth. And uh, then the devil has achieved his purpose at that point uh, to distract us from what we are here to do. So we will pray the Lord will help us, not only with that, but with all the distractions that more regularly come to us each Lord's Day as we gather together, that the Lord would help us to uh, to use those old words of uh, the old translation, to gird up the loins of our minds, that we might be about this most glorious privilege and responsibility and joy and delight, the worship of God. So with those things before us then, let us take a few moments to prepare our hearts to worship God. The call to worship this morning comes from the book of Psalms and Psalm number 47. Psalm 47 and reading verses 5 through 7. Let us hear God's Word. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. Amen. And so far, God's holy word. With joy in our hearts, let us now return praise to God as we join in singing hymn number 61. Rejoice, ye people, homage give. Number 61. If you're able, please stand to sing.
If you will, please remain standing and turn forward to hymn number 236. The King Shall Come When Morning Dawns. 236. Please be seated. And now let us come to God in prayer. Let us all pray. Almighty and eternal God, we come to worship You this morning, to acknowledge that You and You alone are God. You are the Lord, the Most High, the One who is to be feared. You are the great King over all the earth, over all Your creation. And so it is, O Lord, 
you have gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. And we would seek to sing your praises, to sing praises to our great King. You are King of kings. You are Lord of lords. There is no God beside you. All the gods of this world are but vain imaginations of men. You reign, O Lord. You sit on your holy throne in the glorious majesty of heaven. And we would seek to join our voices, even with the assembled host of the church triumphant above, and of even all of the glory of the righteous angels, O Lord, to praise and to bring the honor and the glory that is due to the great God of heaven. Your name, O Lord, be lifted up and praised forever and ever. We come then, our Father, with our confession of our sins to acknowledge in this week that is past and even this very day since we have awoken from sleep that we have sinned against You, that we have not loved You with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength as You have commanded, and neither have we loved our neighbors ourselves. Forgive, O Lord, our sins of commission, our sins of omission, our sins, O Lord, of anger, our sins of discontentment, our sins, O Lord, of pride, our sins, O Lord, of our own ambitions, Lord, our covetousness, and we could go on and on and on, O Lord, for indeed we are sinners, and we deserve not the least of Your goodness and kindness, not the least of Your grace and mercy. And yet you are a God who is abundant in mercy, even to such sinners as we are in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray for His sake, even upon the merits of His accomplished work, we pray that you would forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We give you thanks for such a Savior and such complete and sufficient salvation. We thank You for Your Son whom You sent into this world. We thank You that He assumed to Himself a true human nature, that He became what we are for our sakes, that He might fulfill all righteousness as our representative that He might be the great probation keeper of His people, and then to lay down His life, a ransom for many, that He might make that atonement that was demanded if sins were to be forgiven in His own blood, that He might be both priest and sacrifice as He offered Himself and even took that blood, O Lord, not into the mere copy, but into the heavenly sanctuary itself. And there, O Lord, to turn aside the wrath of God from sinners for all those who will trust in Him. We thank You for that great ministry 
of the Son of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for that priestly ministry He continues this morning for us as He prays for us, even seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. We thank you that following His death, His body lying in the grave, you raised Him from the dead, even in glorious resurrection, that He's ascended now, even to the glory of the majesty on high. And so it is, O Lord, we give You thanks for all that He has done and for all that He is to us, as He is the one who saves to the uttermost all those that will come by faith in Him. Father, then we do come with our prayers of thanksgiving. We are thankful for all of Your mercies to us, both temporal and spiritual. We are thankful to be found here again, O Lord, giving testimony to Your goodness in providing for all of our needs. Lord, You are good, and You are an abundant uh, provider, one who indeed gives us all that we should need. We acknowledge that all of the gifts we have received, O Lord, come from You. What do we have, O Lord, that we have not first received? We pray, O Lord, that You would receive our thanks for Your great benevolence towards us. And then, our Father, we do come with our prayers of petition and intercession. We come to pray for this world in all of its need. We remember again the lands of Morocco, the lands of Libya, even with the great troubles that have come upon them, O Lord, even as headlines fade from one week to the next. Yet, O Lord, we would pray on for all those who are bereaved, for all those, O Lord, who are injured, for all those, O Lord, who have lost much of their temporal uh, possessions in this world and find themselves destitute without homes, perhaps even orphaned, O Lord. Father, have mercy upon them. We think of first responders, O Lord, and all those who uh, are called to respond to these such circumstances. We thank You for strengthening them through this past week. We pray that You would continue to help them as they seek to address the many seemingly overwhelming needs of these communities. Lord, strengthen them by Your common grace, we pray. But most of all, we ask that You might turn hearts and minds, even from things temporal to things eternal, even through these dark providences, that they might see, O Lord, in the shakings of physical earthquake, and even in the great deluge, O Lord, that came when that dam collapsed in Libya. O Lord, pictures of that even greater trouble that will come, even on that last great day, a judgment that comes by fire, a judgment that will cast so many, O Lord, unheeding of Your mercy and grace offered in Your gospel, even to the torments of hell forever and ever. Lord, these are sobering things. We pray that You would help us not to seek to dismiss them from our minds and not want to think about them and continue in our ways this morning. We pray that even in 
the knowledge of such providences elsewhere. You might awaken souls there and awaken souls here and even around the world, O Lord, to Your coming judgment, and so that many might awaken even to the great danger that they face, the coming wrath, O Lord, and that You might draw them in mercy and grace to the free offer of the salvation of Jesus Christ and granting them the gifts of repentance and faith before it is too late. Father, then we pray for our own land. We pray for our leaders as You command us. We pray for all of those in office at every branch and level of government. We pray that You would help them in difficult days, in days of division, days of clamor, days of strife, Father, we pray that they might bow the knee to You, that they might, O Lord, seek wisdom that is not inherent and innate in themselves. We pray that they might seek that knowledge and wisdom that only can come from above. Lord, have mercy upon our nation, we pray, and grant that Your church might be bold in our day, even in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that they might be bold in the declaration of, you, of Your law, reminding men, women, boys, and girls of what You require. And then as it comes, O oh Lord, to confirm us in condemnation by nature, we pray that through the preaching of the gospel it might come as the great balm even to souls under conviction. Lord, awaken our nation, we pray. Grant in all of our communities there would be that clear sounding trumpet of warning and that great heralding of the only way of salvation. Father, then we pray for our own needs. and We ask that You'd have mercy upon us. We pray for our own community around this place where You have located us. We think even of this incident upon our building, O Lord, small in scope perhaps, but yet reminding us, O Lord, of the spiritual battle in which we find ourselves. We pray for perpetrators. You know them when we do not, O Lord. And we pray that even in this action You might bring conviction, that You might grant no rest to the one or ones who did it, O Lord. We ask that You would cause them to consider their ways that this might not be a step, O oh Lord, to continued lawlessness, rebellion, and sin. But we pray, O oh Lord, that it might be a means in Your hand to bring a conviction upon hearts and minds. Lord, we think of the many around the streets and in our city of Placerville. Lord, whatever their particular circumstances this morning, whatever they may be, finding by way of temporal prosperity or lack, we pray that You would bring conviction of sin. We pray that You would draw them even into this place or into other true Bible-believing churches, that they might come inquiring, what must I do to be saved? Hear our prayers for them, we pray. And then, O oh Lord, we do ask for ourselves. You know us in all of our circumstances. We remember those who are away from us, those who are on a variety of journeys. We pray that You'd watch over them. We pray for those, O oh Lord, who have gone out from us to 
uh, be elsewhere for a period of time. We think again of our brother Andrew as he's gone to his studies, even as we think of all of our young people having begun uh, their semesters again, be with them and help them. We think, O oh Lord, of those who are sick. We pray that You would strengthen them today, those who have undergone surgeries, those who have undergone tests. We are thankful, O oh Lord, for results that have been encouraging. We pray that You would continue to work even by the means that You have appointed, O oh Lord, in secondary terms of the knowledge of medicine and procedure. Lord, be the God of all sufficient grace to Your people today. And so, Father, we commend ourselves to You. Even in all of these, our prayers have mercy upon us, we ask, even as we ask in Christ's name. Amen. For the consecutive reading of God's Word in the New Testament, we turn again this morning to Mark's Gospel and to chapter 13. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, commencing to read at verse 1 and reading through verse 23. Mark chapter 13 and verses 1 through 23. Would you please rise, if you're able, for the reading of the Word of God. Mark 13 and verse 1. And as He, that is Jesus, came out of the temple, one of His disciples said to Him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. 
and brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ. Or, look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Amen. And so far, God's holy inspired and infallible word, please be seated. And now again, let us come to God in prayer. Let us all pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come again to ask for Your help as we would hear the Word of God proclaimed. We come to ask for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that He might attend Your Word with that power that converts sinners and that builds up the saints in their most holy faith. Lord, we come to sobering words this morning, words of eternal consequence. We pray that none might leave this building this morning without having had dealings with You, even on the basis of Your Holy Word. Lord, what we pray for, the preaching of Your Word this morning, we pray for the preaching of Your Word this evening, and that You would be with our brother Merv as he would open Your Word this evening. What we pray, O Lord, for the preaching of the Word here, we pray for the preaching of Your Word even in the local churches of this area and even throughout the state, throughout the land, to the ends of the earth. Lord, we pray that You would fulfill Your promise, that Your Word today, wherever it is truly heralded, will not return to You void, 
but that you will sovereignly accomplish the purpose to which you send it. Lord, we pray that those might be purposes of salvation and grace. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please now turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews and chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we return to the passage that we were beginning to consider last Lord's Day morning, verses 23 through 28. So Hebrews chapter 9, commencing to read at verse 23 and reading through the end of the chapter at verse 28. Again, please give your careful attention. This is the Word of God. Hebrews 9 at verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of our God endures forever. In his book, The City of God, Church Father Augustine noted that there is one event in history that is unrepeatable by its very nature. That event is the death of the Son of God for the forgiveness of sin. According to Augustine, the pivotal point of history was the death of Christ. He said that's the event upon which everything turns. And so as we come back to our text this morning in Hebrews 9, verses 23 through 28, we find here that the author focuses on the culminating event of Christ's whole work, His return into heaven after having offered His own blood 
for the sin of His people. We're going to think about three things this morning. First of all, His heavenly ascension revisited. Secondly, certain death and judgments. And then thirdly, eagerly awaiting. So, His heavenly ascension revisited, certain death and judgment, and eagerly awaiting. So, first of all then, heavenly ascension revisited. As we noted last Lord's Day morning, Christ's ascension is not a disconnected, isolated event. It is linked to Christ's life and to His death upon the cross. It is all part of His one work in His first coming to this world. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to bear the sins of His people. He was raised from the dead by the Father in acceptance of that sacrifice. And finally, He ascended into heaven, 40 days after His resurrection, to reign forever and ever as priest and king, and from where He sends the Holy Spirit, Father and Son, for the great salvation of His people. The ministry of the Spirit being to apply the great benefits of the redemption accomplished by Christ. And so, all of this forms one integrated work. And so, as we come to verses 23 through 28 of Hebrews 9, we see the author here focuses on the culminating event of that whole work, Christ's ascension, His entry into heaven, having offered His own blood for sin. Now, the author of Hebrews here in the beginning of this section presents the implications of that return, of that ascension, of that entrance into heaven. Even as Christ comes as Redeemer and High Priest, having shed His own blood upon the cross. First implication that there was a need for a better sacrifice to be offered in that heavenly sanctuary than that of the blood of bulls and goats which had been offered in the earthly copy by the priests of the Levitical order under the Old Covenant, verse 23. Second implication, Christ's application of that better blood, His own blood, to the true things in heaven itself in the presence of God Himself. That's the implication of His ascension. He takes that blood and applies it to the true things, to the heavenly sanctuary in the presence of God, verse 24. And so, Christ's shedding of His blood and His appearance in heaven as Redeemer of His own is a once-for-all event that changes everything, as we noted in verses 25 and 26. The cleansing of heaven for believers by the blood of Christ is, as Augustine says, the turning point of all of history. 
or so much by way of brief review of what we considered last Lord's Day morning. We come in the second place then to certain death and judgment, verse 27, certain death and judgment. The author of Hebrews here proceeds to relate the history of God's redemptive work to the personal, individual history of every person that has been born on earth. Verse 27. There is a relationship between the personal history of every human being and God's redemptive history that centers on the work of Jesus Christ. We might enter into the consideration of this by way of a question. People often ask the question, well, what happens when I die? Most people are interested in that topic, aren't they, and in that question. I've met very few, if any, who they may not initiate the discussion, um, but if you ask them or someone else raises the topic, they have an interest. Why? Because they know they are going to die one day. However, they often put off thinking about that. It is a reality. And so people want to know what happens when I die. Are you asking that question this morning? If not, let me ask it for you. What is going to happen to you when you die? Is there any hope for anything better than your life here below? Now, we're all in differing circumstances. Perhaps we think we're in a circumstance, a season of life that's not particularly easy. And so, this resonates immediately. Sometimes you may be in a season of life when the Lord in His goodness um, has blessed you with many things and you often don't think about anything beyond that. And that que this question becomes somewhat... Uh, um, not totally irrelevant, it's never totally irrelevant, but uh, less immediate in your mind. And sometimes some churches, as they seek to evangelize and bring the gospel to people, find it difficult in uh, communities where everybody seems to have whatever they want, and they're very satisfied with this life. And it can be very hard because people go, well, you know what, I'm, I'm reasonably contented. Uh, what do I want to think beyond this life for? I just, I'm enjoying my best life now. The question still remains, what happens when I die? Is there something better, however good it may be, temporarily in this world, is there something better than that when I leave this life? What happens to me personally? Um, do I just disintegrate into nothing? Is it just a bit like going to sleep, but I never wake up, never conscious again, I just disappear? Or am I absorbed into just, you know, the great cosmos around me? Um, I'm an individual right now. I know I'm an individual. You see me, I see you. You are not me, I'm not you. Um, but that all just disappears when I die, and somehow I just get absorbed into the universe. That's a thought ancient and modern. 
Let me illustrate from an ancient Marcus Aurelius, Roman emperor, philosopher, as he thought himself and others too. He thought of that. He said, man's soul is somewhat of a divine spark, and at death it just returns to be absorbed back into the divine forever. That's what he thought happened. Or perhaps you have some sympathy with Eastern traditions, as we call them, dominant among which is the thought of reincarnation. So when I die, then I come back in a different life, different form even, perhaps. Um, Eastern traditions with their reincarnation think of souls returning for earth as one commentator puts it, he says, quote, for near endless toil in one life after another until finally they merit the reward of oblivion, end quote. So under that way of thinking, um, you don't get to annihilation immediately. You come back and you go through it again and again and again and again until at last, somehow, some way, you can escape that. What's the Christian's answer to this great question? We could keep illustrating different views of men and uh, civilizations, cultures, and so on. Um, I think I've illustrated enough. What's the Bible's answer to this question? It's very different to any of those or any others that we might have considered. How does the Bible answer the most simple question, what happens to you when you die? Hebrews 9 Verse 27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now, that is simple enough for the youngest amongst us who is able to understand the English language to be able to grasp. There is life, and there is death, and no others in between, during, and so forth. There is a resurrection for both the righteous and the unrighteous, but you don't get to live a life over and over and over and over again. And there is something after death. You don't disappear into oblivion. Whether it's some annihilation, whether it's into this universe, whether it's into the divine, what does the Bible say? It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. All will die. Only exception to that is if our Lord Jesus Christ return, returns and brings the coming judgment at that point. But if the Lord tarries, then we will all die one day. Some of us, as we get older, maybe are more conscious of that as the years roll by. But the reality is still the same. And what after that? Judgments. We are to stand before God, to be measured, to be judged according to the perfect standard of God's holy law. On what basis will you be judged? according to a perfection of God's law. Have you done it personally? Have you done it perfectly? And have you done it perpetually? Meaning every moment, no exceptions. That is the standard. Appointed for man to die once, and after comes that judgment. 
What does that tell us? It rules out the thoughts of men for second chances. What does it say? After death, judgments. Isn't this what Jesus Himself warned in His own words? John 8 verse 24, unless you believe that I am He, that is the Christ, the one God has sent to save sinners, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins, He told them. John writes earlier in his gospel, John 3 verse 18, whoever believes in Him, that's in Jesus Christ, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So if you have not reckoned with this reality this morning, if you've not come to terms with the truth of what the Scripture says here very clearly, very plainly, then here again is, in God's mercy, an opportunity given to you to consider the serious, sober reality and warning of coming judgment. Ahead of you as ahead of me is death. But that is not the end. It's not an oblivion. It's not annihilation. It leads to judgment. A judgment in which sinners cannot stand on their own merit. What did Jesus say about those who leave this world in death and go to stand before God in their sins? Matthew 25, verse 46. These will go away into eternal punishment. They're sobering words. These ought to be words that not just ring in our minds, but almost should grasp you physically this morning. I sense almost a weight in my chest as I say these things. Not to say that everybody ought to have that physical response. But these, these words should weigh on us. These will go away into eternal punishment, the Lord Jesus said. That's bad news, isn't it, this morning? Bad news. But there's good news. Jesus has made provision for the forgiveness of such guilty sinners. Jesus died on the cross as a sin bearer, as a substitute in the place of sinners, sinners like you and me, and then appeared before God in heaven with the marks of His atonement still on His hands, His feet, His side, the blood-bearing testimony offered in the true holy place, bearing testimony to His great redeeming work for all who will repent of their sins and look to Him in faith. That's good news, isn't it? It's bad news if you think you are going to die and stand before God in judgment and you will be okay. You will not. 
but there is one who has interposed, as the hymn writer uses that wonderful word, in, interposed his own precious blood that sinners like you and me may not have to face the wrath of God forever and ever. He took that himself and exhausted it in his work upon the cross. If you will trust in Jesus this morning, you have no fear of coming judgment, for Christ has exhausted. That's another great word, isn't it? He has exhausted the fury of the wrath of God for your sins, and you will never be called to pay penalty for them. You're a Christian here. That should move you to tears. should move you to tears. Consider the, the, the fury of the wrath of the eternal God against sin. Maybe you've had the experience or you know the experience of someone who has upset somebody very important and powerful in this world. It usually doesn't go well, does it? There is some fairly serious consequence from that. But in the end, their fury is not limitless. And uh, perhaps in the end, it, it comes to an end. It is not like that with the fury of the indignation of the righteous eternal God. The wrath of God is not some passion that rises and falls, ebbs and flows. It is the expression of the perfection of His holy being. And it is expressed according to the infinity of His being. How will you escape such wrath if you seek to stand before such a God in your sins? You will not, and you cannot. But the glory of the gospel is this, that one, Jesus Christ, has interposed Himself. He has stood in the place of sinners like you and me to exhaust that. Now, we may not be able to fully wrap our minds to comprehend how He can do that. How does God in His own Son exhaust the infinite wrath that we deserve? That if we have to bear that, will be forever and ever and ever and ever. How does that get exhausted in Christ in those hours upon the cross so that Christ can then say, it is finished? It's exhausted for all those who will trust in Him. I can't explain that to you, but I know it is true. We were thinking about some other doctrines in the conference yesterday down in Sacramento and saying it's often this way that as we speak of God and His works, we cannot, we're not obligated to be able to fully comprehend and explain them to the satisfaction of finite men. 
but we are required to believe them as the church and to confess them. And here is one of them. This is true. If you will believe in Jesus Christ this morning, if you will repent of your sins, judgment will not be the everlasting punishment of hell. Death for you will be but an open door to the fullness of eternal life into which you have already entered and to receive the fullness of the blessings of adopted children of God. But if not, I appeal to you this morning if this is you, if you have not repented of your sins, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, a day is coming, a day that is appointed. You may not know that when that is. I do not know when that is. But it is appointed by God. It is a certain date. Certain death and judgment. For after death comes judgment to all those who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ and the great offer of eternal life in Him. That brings us in the third place this morning to eagerly awaiting, eagerly awaiting verse 28. The author of Hebrews here concludes with two important observations. First of all, he tells us that in the death of Christ and in His ascension into heaven, something definitive has happened. In other words, it's a definitive work with a definitive result. What is that? To bear the sins of many. Why did Christ die? Why did Christ ascend into heaven to offer that better blood in the heavenly sanctuary, to bear the sins of many, the author says. Verse 28a. Here this passage contains a statement both of the means and the end for all of human history. The means is the appearance of Jesus Christ as that decisive intervention that would change everything in terms of the desperate plight of sinners. This was the great significance, the great importance of the first coming of Christ. He came not just to be born, not just to assume to Himself, to use the right technical term, uh, a true humanity, but He did that in order to live and to die. He had to live the life of all righteousness to fulfill the law's demands. And then He had to die to offer His blood, to pay penalty, to offer that sacrifice so that He might appear for us in God's presence. Here the focus is on that twofold work, His death for our forgiveness and His life in resurrection and ascension for our salvation. Romans 6.10, Paul says, the death He died, speaking of Christ, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. And so Christ died definitively and He lives definitively. 
He secures our salvation, Christian, by His eternal testimony to His once-for-all work for our salvation. Taken together, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His eternal life in heaven are the means of our salvation, the author says. Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And then verse 26 expresses the end. That was the means. What's the end? Verse 26, the end towards which all of this is directed, to put away sin. Why did He do all that? To put away sin. And then verse 28a says it again, just in case we miss it in verse 26, to bear the sins of many. Christ has taken away the sin of all those who will trust in Him. That's what He came to do. His work was directed to that end, and it is accomplished, done once for all and forever. This is the great intention, the great purpose of the saving work of Christ. All of which, notice here, is now declared, is heralded, it is preached in the past tense. Did you catch that? He was sacrificed. He entered heaven to appear for us. It's done. It's accomplished. It's secure. Finished. Once for all. And yet, Christian, we still have to contend with sin, don't we, in this world? We're not yet perfected. Sin is defeated, but not yet fully removed from the Christian, whilst we yet remain in this world. And therefore, the author, reflecting on that, says we eagerly await Christ's return, because that's when that will be, finally accomplished. We eagerly await Christ's return to save us from what yet is still the struggle with sin, the putting off of the old man, the putting on of the new man. We must yet wait, but we eagerly await that day, the ultimate redemption of our body and soul, the ultimate granting of us in consummate form of our great salvation. But whilst we wait, we are still secure forever, now and forever. Yes, in God's purpose and timing, we have the already and wait the not yet. But it is not yet of uncertainty. It is a not yet of simply waiting fulfillment in God's great time and wisdom. So, that's the first observation the author makes here. The second observation he concludes with is, although Christ's death and appearance in heaven for us is the turning point of history, it's not the end of history. That was a turning point for sure, 
great turning point according to Augustine, and I think he's right. But it wasn't the end of history. Everything didn't come to culmination and consummation at that point. And that's where we come to the very last part of the very last verse of this section, verse 28b. Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. What remains? It's not for more of the work of the salvation to be accomplished. That's, that's done once for all. What remains is the proclamation of that whilst Christ tarries, the extension, advancement of the kingdom of God through the proclamation of that gospel, the ingathering of all those that God purposed from all of eternity to save through faith in Christ. That's what remains until Christ appears that second time when He will not come to deal with sin. He's already done that but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. We might put it this way. History had a beginning, didn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The beginning of history is the creation of all things in God's sovereign purpose. But then history had a problem. Man rebelled, disobeyed God, fell into sin, and condemnation. But history has this great focal turning point that provided the answer to the sinner's greatest need. That was the first coming of Jesus Christ. His incarnation, His life, death, resurrection, ascension into heaven as the great Redeemer, as the great priest. But history also has its end point, its culmination. If you like the technical theological term, it's it, the, the theologians talk about the telos, simply just the Greek word for end, so don't be mystified by that. History has its great end point, the return, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not to come in a state of humility and weakness, but to return in great glory and power and strength. As the author says here, verse 28, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. What a great hope that is. I, I trust you rejoice in that this morning. The great hope we have as Christians that's given to all who believe, even though we yet have to struggle and fight the great fights day after day, battling yet with sin, we have this great hope. The return of Christ, the great culmination, the great end points, the great telos of all of human history. Puritan John Owen put it like this. He says, quote, Faith in the second coming of Christ is sufficient to support the souls of believers and to give them satisfactory consolation in all difficulties, trials, and distresses. All true believers do live in a waiting, 
longing expectation of the coming of Christ. It is one of the most distinguishing characteristics of a sincere believer so to do. And then Owen concludes where he says, at the second appearance of Christ, there will be an end of the business about sin, both on his part and ours, end quote. Do you sometimes feel weary, Christian, in the battle with sin? Discouraged even? It will not always be this way. It will not always be this fight and this struggle. It's not simply the way that things are and always will be. Sin has been decisively, definitively dealt with in the death of Christ. And even as true believers still have to war against it in this world, the victory is already secured. And that victor's crown lies ahead for each and every true Christian. As one commentator so wonderfully wrote in just these few words, he, so, he said, quote, lies not far ahead, not far ahead. I trust that encourages your soul. However weary you may feel in the battle this morning, not far ahead. Now, he wasn't seeking to be the prophet or a son of a prophet for predicting the day of Jesus' return. It was in that spirit of saying when we consider what that will mean to us for all of eternity, then the struggles of this life will seem so small and short in comparison. It's that spirit of the Apostle Paul when he says the light and momentary afflictions of this life compared with the surpassing glory of that which will be ours hereafter for all of eternity. That's the spirit in which he said it. Lies not far ahead. Do you know anything of that this morning? To encourage your soul. There are many things from the Scriptures we can speak of that are characteristic of the Christian, but here this morning is this idea, eagerly awaiting the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We often use these words as we gather around the Lord's table, and we, so we remind ourselves we, we do this by His commandment. He is the Lord and King of His church, but only until He comes. And then we often use those words, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's what we're focusing on here, this great hope that we have. Are you eagerly awaiting that this morning? Or perhaps it might be that you go, well, yeah, I am, but you know, there's a lot of other things I want to do in this world first. Um, one of the ways we can examine our hearts and test, are we really eagerly awaiting something? Um, how disappointed would you be if the Lord returned now? Would you think, well, you know, um, I had a lot of years left. I wasn't that old. You know, I was kind of looking forward to doing a whole host of other things. You know, I'm, I'm glad he's here, but, you know, well, what did I miss out on? Um, or if you're older, maybe you're looking forward to retirement, and you're going, well, you know, I, I could have done with a few years of just, you know, I worked really hard, and I'd saved up some money. I paid my mortgage off. You know, my, my kids are doing well, and they're doing all their things, and, and now's the time for me. And my spouse, let's not be too selfish, right? Uh, for me and my spouse, uh, to kind of enjoy some things. Well, the Lord's returned. Hmm. Uh, can I, did I miss out somewhere? 
Um, you know, sometimes we can be so wrapped up, even in the good things that God gives us in this world, that when that which will surpass all of that, we go, well, yeah, but, you know, I'd like to do all of this first. We need to think about that. Are we eagerly awaiting the Lord's return this morning? One last application then. What matters then from all of this is really only one thing. Have you repented of your sins? Turn to Jesus Christ in faith to save you so that when He returns, not to deal with sin in penalty payment, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Does that describe you this morning? Are you in Christ this morning? Sometimes when we say this, we have to say it very carefully to make sure we are speaking properly according to the truth of God's Word. But let me say it because it will strike, I hope, by way of the application. Did Christ die for you this morning? And just before everybody jumps on me at the door and says, you know, you've suddenly become an Arminian or something, um, you here to the end of the sermon. Did Christ die for you? Does this speak of you this morning? The answer is yes, if you repent of your sins and trust in Him alone for salvation. This applies to you. He died as your substitute. Sometimes as we speak and preach even, sometimes we want to be so careful that we can make it so impersonal. Paul was always a very careful theologian, spoke properly concerning these things. But what did he say concerning the Lord Jesus? He said he was the one who loved what? Sinners? Yes, he said that sometimes. But what does he say in Galatians 2.20? The great personal testimony of Paul the Christian, who loved me, he says, and gave himself for whom? For sinners? Yes. But Paul says, for me. Can you say that this morning? You can say that if you've repented of your sins by the Lord's help and grace and trusted in Jesus alone for salvation. He loved me and gave Himself for me. Let me take up the other picture just as we close here of, of the text here. When our Lord Jesus entered heaven in His great ascension to appear before God in the heavenly temple as the great guarantee of salvation and intercessor for His people, was your name among the number that He represents? Is He representing you here this morning? Same answer to the question, did He die for you? Yes, if you repent of your sins and trust in Him alone for salvation. He is there to represent for you, if you will believe, for me, if I will believe. If we've trusted Him, He is our Savior, our great High Priest, our great Redeemer. 
And if that's the case, if we've trusted Him, then we have peace with God, Paul says. We have a joy that bears fruit within us even as we eagerly await Him. As we eagerly await the Lord Jesus' return, it's not an idle waiting. We don't sit in some waiting room with our feet up in a nice reclining chair. The Lord has called us to work for Him as faithful servants while we eagerly await Him. We seek to worship Him even in the um, imperfections of our yet unglorified bodies and souls. We bear witness to Him and His glorious gospel to an unbelieving world whilst we eagerly await for Him. To a world that is lost, to a world still standing in the guilt of its sins, and we have the answer And one last time, are you in Christ this morning? Did He die for you? Does He represent you in heaven? If you repent of your sins and trust in Him, He did, He does. And if that is true of you, Christian, then whilst you eagerly await for Him, work for Him, labor for Him as a faithful servant so that on that last great day when He does return in glory, you will hear those glorious words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. May God grant it to each one of us this morning. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank You for this one who offered Himself once to bear the sins of many, the one who is coming, not to deal with sin, but to save those fully, completely, consummately, even as we weakly await for Him. We pray that You would burn Your great warnings into our hearts and minds, particularly for all those yet in their sins, O Lord. It's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. We pray, O Lord, forbid it that any should ignore this warning this morning. Forbid it, O Lord, that any should be called into eternity, or that last great day when you appear in glory should overtake them, and they still be in their sins. Lord, cause those things to make sinners tremble, but not to despair, but so that they might flee to the cross of the Savior who has been provided for such sinners, and so that they might say that they are included in the sins of the many for whom Christ shed His precious blood. Here as we pray for your Son's sake. Amen. We turn again to our hymnals, to hymn number 240. Great God, what do I see and hear? Please rise to sing if you are able.
Amen, people of God. Receive the Lord's blessing in his benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Go in the Lord's mercy and peace.